How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 145 of X-Labs, where, well, we've got us a milestone. It's uh, not an X-Labs milestone, but it is a mutant milestone. This is the 300, or allegedly the 350th issue of uh, Wolverine here, or 350 solo adventures, which uh, discounts, uh, well, a whole lot of Wolverine solo adventures, but... uh, what are you going to do? It gives us an excuse to have a, uh oversized issue and uh, kick off a few story threads and, uh, well, let's just get into it. Let's get into it here. Uh, this is Wolverine Volume 7, Number 8, at a February 2021 cover date with a legacy number of 350. We got two stories this issue. The first is called War Stories. The second is The Past Ain't Dead, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Adam Cubitt and Victor Bogdanovic. Colors, Antonio Fabella and Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Sobolski. Cover price, $5. And this one went on sale December 30th of 2020. So, 350 issues of Wolverine, eh? Uh, should we do that thing where we engage in the voodoo math that Marvel had to employ to get us here? Um, if you're familiar with Marvel's legacy program, you'll know, you'll know just how fast and loose they are as it, as it pertains to, like, what counts as part of a series' legacy. If you remember Marvel Legacy back in 2017, 2018, they put out those infographics, right? And they were (laughs) downright labyrinthine in their presentation here, um... To get their legacy books up to a nice round number or, or close enough to a round number where they'll hit that round number with the quickness. I mean, they pulled one-shots, miniseries, various bits and bobs here. Sometimes from like, like arcs from whole other series in order to justify reaching or getting close to a milestone. I remember some that jumped out at me was uh, like Avengers. It would like include... One or two of the volumes of New Avengers, but not the third or fourth. Um, and also, it would be like Mighty Avengers was in there, but not all of it. And then all new, all different Avengers was in there, but again, not all of it. Um, Hulk, Hulk would have uh, Incredible Hulk would have like bits and pieces from the Red Hulk series integrated into its uh, into its legacy numbering. Indestructible Hulk was part of it. Um, Amazing Spider-Man had Superior Spider-Man as part of its legacy numbering It's uh, pretty wild stuff here And, uh, I mean, the thing of it is, it was all a moot point anyway, right? It didn't amount to anything, considering that each and every one of these books 
was relaunched at least once uh, to a new number one at, at this point anyway. So what we're going to do, we're going to check out the old internet, and we're going to find out how Marvel reached the conclusion that uh, Wolverine Volume 7 Number 8 is actually the 350th issue. This is to say we're not counting things like Wolverine Origins, we're not counting Wolverine Max, we're not counting Wolverine The Best There Is, we're not counting any number of the miniseries that he was in, any number of the one-shots he was in. We're even dismissing the first four-issue Wolverine miniseries, the Claremont Miller one, which, I mean, that tells me right there that this isn't an actual milestone. Because had they included that, Wolverine number four would have been the 350th, but that one wouldn't have been extra-sized, so I guess they decided to hold off. Now, let's see here. We start with Wolverine's first ongoing series, so Volume 2, and that ran 189 issues. The second ongoing, or Volume 3, that launched uh, with a Greg Rucka storyline. That would run 74 issues, right? But here's the thing. It would change its name to Dark Wolverine with issue 75, shifting focus from Logan to Dakin Dakin during the Dark Rain days. And so, right around that time, Logan had yet another ongoing launch in Wolverine colon Weapon X, and that ran a whopping 16 issues, which we're counting for the legacy. Wolverine Volume 4, that opened with the Jason Aaron Wolverine and Hell story that we referenced uh, back during Exit 10s, That one ran for 20 issues, but with its 21st issue, it would actually take the legacy numbering back with issue 300. So, I mean, even the first time we went back to the legacy numbering, we left out that first miniseries. I don't remember what was going on back then. I don't know if there was a reason why they held off instead of counting the uh, Claremont Miller story. Don't know. Now, the legacy numbering would run from issue 300 up to 317, And then it would be relaunched again. Wolverine Volume 5 was the first of two Paul Cornell, Alan Davis volumes. I want to say this was part of Marvel now, but I could be mistaken. And this one ran a mind-blowing 13 issues. Volume 6, which kept the same creative team. And the same trade dress that would run an amazing, absolutely phenomenal 12 issues. I'm not sure why it was relaunched in the first place, uh, other than to say it's Marvel, and that's what Marvel does. Now we're in volume number seven, which at this point, at the point of this episode, right, has eight issues. That gets us neatly and tidily to Wolverine number 350. Aren't you glad you asked? Well, let's just get into it. Um, We open with a battle-ravaged Wolverine emerging from the Krakoan gateway that he had left in Jeff Bannister's backyard a few issues ago. Now, Bannister offers him a brew as it looks like he's in dire need of one. He then asks to hear about what happened, but Logan ain't in the mood to talk. He's here for some CIA business and nothing more. Bannister gets it. The CIA's got secrets, so why wouldn't the mutant CIA and X-Force have theirs? We're, we're drawing parallels here, you see. Now, Jeff figures that he'd rather, that rather than chat about the here and now, maybe they just swap old war stories because he's sure Wolverine's got plenty. Now, Logan assures him that even though he left a Krakoan gate in his yard, that don't exactly make him family. Bannister decides to grease the wheels a bit. He'll tell his story first in hopes that Logan will share one afterwards. And so, we get Jeff Bannister's war story. 
Now, he was sent on a mission by the CIA to take out some enemy combatants, only to find out after the fact that the people he murdered were actually Americans who were approaching the enemy in hopes of brokering a peace deal with them, thus ending the conflict. But the American war machine didn't want the war to end, you see, and so these peaceniks were taken out. And the whole thing was blamed on terrorists, which Bannister concedes they were, in fact, terrorists on that day. It's your basic don't-trust-the-government story. Uh, We get plenty of these during wartime and when a creator didn't vote for whoever's currently in power. These are nothing new to us. Now, Wolverine asked Bannister why he would ever stick with the CIA after such a thing, and uh, rather than saying for the money or for the benefits, Jeff suggests that uh, he thinks he can do more from within. Yeah, likely story. Next, it's Wolverine's turn, and so he prefaces with the fact that he's got, he's got a Swiss cheese memory, which I could have sworn had been rectified, but uh, whatever. And so we get a page of some reddish sepia-colored memories here. We see Wolverine in costume killing some dudes. Wolverine in street clothes, killing some dudes. Wolverine in his Weapon X helmet, fighting sentinels? (laughs) Okay, I don't remember that story. Now, the story he's going to tell finally begins. And it's a throwback to his time on Team X. I suppose maybe in the current current landscape it might be Team 10, uh, but I'm never going to call them that. Uh, Now, Team X, that's the crew we learned a bit about during Omega Red's uh, first storyline back in 1992. Now, the main team that we focus on, and we focused on back then, was Wolverine, Sabretooth, and that fella on the cover, who we don't see all that often, Maverick. Now, this story also has to do with senseless destruction. You see, Team X is sent via the CIA to an oil platform, and they fight their way through, kill a bunch of dudes, suffer a bunch of injuries, and blow the thing up. All for nothing more than the CIA's profit. Bannister puts his hand on Logan's shoulder, offers him help, and suggests that maybe they get some war wounds together. You know, they work together and just hope for a better future, I suppose. Um, He then warns of some behind-the-behind-the-scenes stuff that's afoot. This is in the form of the X-Desk. As he says this, we can see X-Desker, Dolores What's-Her-Face, looking on, and uh, she appears to be... uh, Quite sinister. Even though, uh, when we saw her chatting up Storm on the subway over on that Marauders issue, she was presented as an ally, right? Um, I mean, she even helped out with that Hominus Verinde deal, didn't she? Uh, Makes me wonder, are the X-Writers not paying attention to uh, the entire line? Well, it wouldn't shock me if they're not. Um, From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We're going to be paying attention to the following characters. Wolverine, Omega Red, Scout, Dakin Dakin, Sage, Beast, and Jeff Bannister. Now from here, we change directions a bit. Uh, We leave the Bogdanovic art behind and move into Cubertville. And we spend five pages watching a black ops group break into what the story refers to as a U.S. government black site. Now one of these masked folks makes his way in. He uses a key card to access this storage room, and in it he finds Logan's Team X dog tag, and he pockets it. I think we can probably assume that this is Maverick, because it sure ain't Sabretooth. Uh, at least I hope it's not, <laughs> because uh, there's no way we'll be able to explain our way through that. Next stop, we shift scenes to Krakoa, where Omega Red is minding his own business, trying to 
hunt a bear or a boar or a beast of some sort. This turns out to be a trap. He gets snagged and hoisted up by a tree branch. You know that whole cartoon thing where you, where like a Elma Fudd would put like a like a a rope with like a carrot in the middle of it, and like when Bugs Bunny would step on it, like the rope would shoot up and he'd hang from the tree. Basically, that it's just Omega Red hanging upside down. He's then attacked by Scout and Dakin Dakin. And uh, I gotta say, thank goodness X-23 ain't here Because that's another toughie that we'd have to explain Now Red manages to hold his own quite well against the two But then Wolverine himself shows up He accuses Arcady of a bunch of shenanigans All of which Omega Red denies You see, Red claims not to be working for the Vampire Nation Nor is he working for the Russians Nor did he follow Wolverine to that bar back in issue 4 And plunge him in the ice he suggests that Wolverine himself might be mesmerized at the moment. To which, the Logan family all retract their claws and suggest that they pick up this fight on another day. In fairness to Omega Red, and with all credit due, uh, he was doing quite well against Wolverine here. He uh, actually had him tied up in his tendrils, and it looked like if he wanted to, he might have won the fight. So here's the question. When did this scene happen? Was this after Beast killed him over an X-Force? Which would let it lead us to assume that this is post-resurrection? Or was this before Gene attempted to look into his mind? Hmm, maybe we'll find out soon. First, an info page. It's called The Singing Stones. And I think it was Damien who suggested that Ben Percy needs an intervention when it comes to these info pages, and this is definitely another sign of that. These are transcriptions of Krakoan surveillance, and this page is probably twice as dense as it needs to be. Uh, The only one that's probably worth discussing is the fact that the New Mutant religion is a growing concern in the established religious community. Not sure which one, but we could probably safely assume that it's the Catholic Pope expressing concern. And we know this is actually leading somewhere with the upcoming Way of X series. Maybe not so much with the Pope, but there is the religion afoot. We jump back to comics, and we've got Sage and Beast introducing Wolverine to a place that they call the Shadow Room. And it looks kind of like Tron, if you're familiar with Tron. Anywho, they fill Logan in on just what went down at that U.S. government black site. Beast deduced that this was a targeted attack, having to do with Team X memorabilia. Wolverine wonders why anybody would be interested in that, and, uh, you know what, I gotta agree with our hairy little titular hero. But we'll get there. Beast also calls Logan out on his skirmish with Omega Red, which surprises Logan a bit, because how would Beast know, right? Well, that might just answer our question as to when this story is taking place. If you remember, Beast had those surveillance and tracking doohickeys added to Red Sea Synth, which would have been implanted post-resurrection. So, credit where it's due. This is a great use of a seemingly throwaway line in order to confirm exactly where we are in the story. And uh, I really dig it. I really dig it. We're not beaten over the head with it. It's actually subtle. And uh, I really, really like it. So credit definitely where it's due. Sage then informs Wolverine that one of the mercenaries who broke into the black site was a mutant. You see, he bled a little bit during the mission, and they know it's mutant blood, but can't confirm who's mutant blood. They have a sneaking suspicion it's Maverick, which suggests to me that they just read the solicitation for this issue. They further suggest that he's under some sort of mind control, because why the hell not? 
info page all about the Mercs, which is a Mavericks uh, group, very, very creatively named group. There's also some Xeno stuff, which after 15 issues of X-Force and 8 issues of Wolverine, I was kind of hoping we'd be done with by now. Um, There's also a mention of Trevor Crosby, the former owner of Domino's Dog and, you know, sea monster meal, Rufus. He's apparently been sent back out into the field by Beast as as something of an unwitting double agent, I think. From here, we jump back into comics, and we rejoin the Mercs as they attempt to break into Dazzler's house. Why Dazzler's house? Huh. Well, I have a suspicion, simply going off of what the cover to the next issue looks like, but we will get there. Anyway, the Mercs are attacked by some electric light security system of sorts. It basically looks like they're being stampeded by a whole bunch of wolves. And also, uh, Wolverine. He's here too. Our hero snags Crosby in order to question him about Maverick. We learn that Maverick started up this crew of Mercs, but it's not Maverick's fault, it's Krakoa's fault. You see, once Krakoa declared its sovereignty, there was a cutback to wartime efforts which left a whole bunch of mercenaries and black ops types out of work and uh, quite bored. He further reveals that they're working for a place called Legacy House, and they are curators of superhero and supervillain collectibles, hence collecting Wolverine's dog tags and busting into Dazzler's house, hopeful that they might find a quarry there. Now, next issue's cover implies that we're going to be sitting in on an auction, and so this legacy house is going to need commodities to be bid on. There you go. Now, before Crosby is able to spill any more of the beans, he gets sniped. He's dead. From here, we shift over to Madripoor, where Wolverine has readopted his patch persona in order to sit in on legacy house's dealings. Sage informs him that she's procured his invitation to the affair from, quote, the Dark Web. Um, ben Percy sure loves him some Dark Web, don't he? It's kind of the uh, catch-all for nefariousness. And so, we wrap up with Patch about to enter room 13 of some hotel ready to do some bidding. It's worth noting the Patch reveal is treated like some sort of gigantic ta-da sort of thing, even though anybody who's ever read an issue Wolverine before saw this coming a mile away. But... That's where we leave it, the big milestone, 350th sort of kind of issue of Wolverine. Next episode, we hopefully get things sorted out over in X-Men. But how about we talk about this one? I gotta say, I'm pretty surprised to, uh, to be coming out of this one thinking so positively about it. I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um... The, uh, there were there were little bits of it that dragged. I mean, it is an oversized issue, um, but I really like the idea of this auction house. Now, this is something I'm I'm sure has been done before. I just don't know that I've ever seen it done before. And I really like um, I like the idea of a legacy house out there collecting you know bits and bobs from the characters and uh, and auctioning them off to Lord knows who. I guess we'll find out next issue. I think that's. Uh, that's really cool stuff here, and I like that it um, the formation of Krakoa almost facilitated it in that um, all these uh, black ops types and mercenaries, uh, they suddenly don't have a whole lot of work to do. So they are uh, they're taking odd jobs. 
They're taking odd jobs collecting collectibles to be uh, auctioned off. I like that. Um, what I mean, the Maverick stuff is a little too convenient, I think. I mean, I don't... Had we not uh, had the Jeff Bannister and Wolverine conversation in the beginning, I think the potentially Maverick reveal uh, might have meant a little bit more because it just felt so telegraphed. And then again... I mean, I don't know where that conversation's taking place. That conversation might be taking place at the end of the story. You know, this could be Wolverine telling the story to Bannister. It wasn't made uh, abundantly clear if that was the case, but it also wasn't made clear that it wasn't. So perhaps that's why he's talking about uh, Maverick with Bannister. But if it is, like, linearly being told here, if the Bannister bit happens before everything else, then it seems a little bit contrived. Um... But really, other than that, not a whole heck of a lot happened here. I think I was just so taken by the concept of uh, of that auction house because it's just not something I've seen done, as far as I can remember, in an X-book yet. So I think this is pretty cool, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes, and I'm looking forward to seeing... Yeah, I mean, there might be some interesting folks in the crowd doing the bidding. Uh, I think that uh, that could be a fun time. Uh, the art here, eh, phenomenal stuff here. Kubert uh, and uh, Bogdanovic are wonderful artists, but I feel like um, <laughs> I don't want oversized issues of Wolverine every couple of months that have both artists involved in them, just introducing the new stories, like the Kubert the story and the Bogdanovic story. I mean, we had that in Wolverine number one, and here we have it again in Wolverine number eight. I don't want us to get to Wolverine number 13 and have another book like this because this is kind of like, you know me, I love the bubbling subplot. I love the Claremontian classic traditional comic book storytelling, the, uh, the serialized, you know, bubble away in the background sort of thing. This isn't that. What we're getting is we're getting these... These, not subplots, we're just getting plots dropped in our lap here. I mean, let's go back to the first the first issue here. We got the Pale Girl and the Vampire Nation plots. These aren't subplots. These are just like, okay, these are the direction, go, right? Out of those two, we've only wrapped up one. The Pale Girl is done for now. So we still have the Vampire Nation thing cooking. And now we get two more, not subplots, just plots dropped on us here. We have the X-Desk situation with Bannister and Wolverine. And we have Legacy House with Wolverine and potentially Maverick. And I mean, that's not a bad thing, but I think it might overstay its welcome if we just keep doing it this way. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like the stories are kind of just... I know we don't want stories to bleed into one another with how stories are being told nowadays with collectability in the trade format, but this just feels like so abrupt. It's like, okay, here we're going to open up the next trade, so here's your plot. Go. I don't want that. <laughs> I really don't want that. But at least, uh, you know, the, the Legacy House plot is interesting. Looking forward to it. The X-Desk one, not so much. Uh, especially when uh, Dolores What's-Her-Face is being presented. It's like we met Dolores on the subway with Storm, and it was just them talking. Here, it's almost as though Dolores took a flashlight and put it under her chin (laughs) and glowed it up to make herself look sinister and uh, underhanded, and that's the character we're dealing with. I... 
It doesn't feel consistent, and it feels like it might be a... I don't know, just like kind of like low-hanging fruit for a uh, antagonist. Hopefully this is just a bit of misdirection, or maybe I'm just projecting a sinisterness onto her because of the way the light reflected off her face. But uh, I, I'm hoping that they keep this consistent with how the how the X-Desk, or at least Dolores of the X-Desk, has been presented uh, before. Maybe she was uh, mesmerized by Storm, and that's why she was so nice. I really don't know. But uh, overall, I... I think this this book has a problem with milestones. Uh, we talked about issue one not feeling like the launch of a new ongoing series, and here we have this you know special legacy numbering number three fifty, and it doesn't really feel like a milestone. It feels like a good issue, but it doesn't feel like a uh, a milestone. But uh, what are you gonna do? They're not all gonna feel that way, and uh, at least I was able to enjoy it for what it was, and what it was was a Fairly decent issue, which we don't often get in the Wolverine solo book But uh, that's all I got to say about this milestone issue I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts If you agree, disagree, have anything you'd like to add to the conversation Please, please feel free to do so Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here We're going to start with Damien talking about X-Factor number 5 he says, I'm really enjoying X-Factor at the moment. Leia Williams and David Baldion are doing great work. They really are producing work that could only work in comics, like the sequence following the map at the Boneyard. It's great to see work in comics that doesn't feel like a discarded film script. They also do a fantastic job of character work. I actually find myself caring about characters like Dick and Dackett, who I previously found insufferable. And that's a great point. That's a, a, Both of those points are great points. Um... I am a huge sucker for the uh, for the uh, cross section <laughs> sort of thing. We talked about it during the X Factor book. Uh, we got the cross section of the Boneyard where we, and, and I, I believe I mentioned it d- during the discussion there. Um, we got like the the schematic, so we knew exactly what rooms did what. And then on the very on the back of that same page, we saw the same thing, but just not as a schematic, just as a picture, and we saw panels. Jumping around the uh, boneyard, showing characters uh, just uh, interacting and uh, having a good time, and it, it really one fed into the other, and it did so just just perfectly well. It really, really served to um, move the story forward and give us. It made the boneyard feel feel lived in, you know, and ha- inhabited, and I thought that was very, very well done here, and. Also, uh, your second point about uh, Dakin Dakin here. When we started X Factor, I knew very little about Dakin Dakin. I only knew a bit about him from hey, the Dark Wolverine series that we mentioned earlier in the episode. I knew a little bit about him from there, and I believe he was. I want to say he died, and he came back as a horseman for the Apocalypse Twins over in Uncanny Avengers. I think it was like Dakin, um, Grim Reaper, Banshee, and somebody... Sentry? Maybe the Sentry? I think it might have been the Sentry, were the uh, horsemen of the Apocalypse Twins. And that's all I really knew about him. I didn't know much, so when we got X-Factor number one, and he just became the very the hypersexual guy... And I mean, I understand he's got pheromonal powers, or I don't even know if pheromonal's a word, but I assume you guys know what I'm talking about. 
he just became like a one-note character, and I thought that's the way he was going to be played for that point on. I thought it was just going to be like, okay, we need a, we need a, a, some levity. Let's bring in, uh, you know, Dakin so he can flirt with whoever's nearby, right? That seemed to be his his only role in that first issue of uh, of X Factor, and even into the second issue, which was uh, one of my all-time least favorites that we discussed on this program, but. As for now, it's so bizarre. The 180 I've done on this character, just like Damien, um, he is a welcome sight on the page now. I, I'm really, really digging his uh, his relationship with Aurora here. I could think I could do without him working on his etchings, but uh, I really love the uh, the relationship that he has with Aurora here. I don't understand it yet. We, I don't think any of us know what, exactly how, how deep or how far it goes, but it's fun. It's really fun. And we have this guy who's been presented as a hypersexualized, overly confident guy who almost appears to be sheepish around Aurora. He's still got a, a bit of cockiness to him, but he also seems more reserved. Like, he doesn't want to screw this up. You know, he, he seems to value the potential uh, of this relationship, and uh, and it, it's it's almost adorable. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. Now, Damien continues, I love that the people in the story are discussing the resurrection protocols and the crucible. They're not just stories to them, they are the background to their lives. Talking of the crucible, I can't wait for you to get to its return. It appears in a fantastic story that you'll get to very soon. Well, my interest is piqued. I am definitely looking forward to that. I was worried that uh, Hickman kind of just said, like, okay, there's a crucible. I told, I showed you. I told you about it. And it's done, <laughs> you know? Because we haven't really seen or heard anything of it. And I think, I, I, I don't remember who asked, but somebody had asked if, if this X-Factor issue was the only other time we ever heard of the Crucible, and I was struggling to think of of times other than X-Men number 7 and X-Factor number 5 where the Crucible did come up. I don't know that it did. So to hear that it's on its way back, hopefully that'll answer some questions about who's manning it now that Apocalypse is gone, and what are, what are these characters thinking? You know, how do they feel about it? So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Thank you for letting me know that it's on the way, because... Uh, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it and talk about it with you all. Now, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Amazing Baby stars in a reboot of Homeward Bound with Jeff the Landshark and Ms. Lion, <laughs> make my neck lapsed. They should do that. They definitely should do that. I mean, Jeff should come. I mean, we, we got first we got to get we got to get Gwenpool into X Factor, right? We got to hashtag Gwenpool for X Factor, the number four because it's it's you know the kids use numbers instead of words, right? So hashtag Gwenpool for number four X Factor, Gwenpool for X Factor. So we'll get her in that book, right? We'll force their hand. We will be the dozens. That, that push Gwenpool into X-Factor. Then Jeff the Landshark can come and visit his old owner. We got Amazing Baby there already. Bingo, bango. We got it done. See, that's that's what we need to do. That is, that is the new mission statement of this program. We'll have Amazing Baby and Jeff the Landshark hang out. It's got to happen. And if it does happen, even by accident, we will, all of us, the X-Lapsed Extended X-Family, will take... Full and complete credit for it. 
no matter what. So there's that. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on a wonderful issue of X Factor, Damien. I always love hearing from you. Uh, next up, we got a couple from Evan here. And this one, this is one I probably should have shared in the last episode here. This is about X-Men Red Annual number one here, and it kind of goes with uh, his discussion of X-Factor Volume 1 number one, which he read for uh, some context on the weird Chris Claremont Corsair Cyclops story in X-Men The Exterminated. So, he says, I also noticed a parallel between this issue, meaning X-Factor number one, and X-Men Red Annual number one. Jean returning and wanting to take action, make up for lost time, and improve the world. In both cases, she, out of the, as you put it, the X-Men Den Mother role, the only role those of us who took the X-Plunge early in Volume 2 have ever seen her in, I wonder if there was an intentional parallel here. In this issue, we even saw Mr. Fantastic and Angel getting pelted with aluminum cans, no doubt filled with high fructose corn syrup and prejudice. I could give them one of those lines, but two in rapid succession by two different characters is too much. And, you know, it's funny. I, I think I think to suggest that um, they drew parallels uh, between the two issues is giving the creators way too much credit. <laughs> I'd love to see... I mean, pat- when you when you look for patterns, they they just show up. Sometimes I, I'm I do that all the time. That's something I love doing. <laughs> it's something I can't help but to do. And I'd love that if this was if this was the case here. I just I just don't give the creators that much credit. But uh, I I love the picture you shared on the Facebook group of Mister Fantastic getting pelted with a can. And uh, yes, it's it's full of a. Uh, you know, diet coke and uh, and bigotry, <laughs> and that is a that is a reference to uh, some lines in X Men Red Annual One that uh, really turned me off and stopped me from ever trying the main X Men Red volume. Uh, I haven't read any of it yet. Um, I I will, I will, I I definitely will. But uh, X Men Red Annual was the first X-Men Red book I read. And I read it for a podcast that I appeared on that uh, suffered technical difficulties and thankfully never aired because I was pretty brutal about this issue. And I kind of got stuck on this one page. I was... Uh, <laughs> I really just couldn't couldn't bring myself to enjoy it, is the thing. I Because there is a page in this book where... Um, and forgive me if I shared this already on the main X-Lapsed program. I, I tend to talk a lot, and I don't retain much of what I say. So I might be repeating myself here. And if I am, I apologize. And if you heard this spiel on the X-Men Red Annual episode, I apologize for the repetition. But uh, Nightcrawler and Jean Grey go to Central Park, where Nightcrawler has a hot dog thrown at him. Jean freezes it in midair. Nightcrawler plucks it out of midair, takes a bite of it, and says that it tastes like mustard and bigotry. Which, I mean, is cringe enough as it is. But then Jean, like, totally flips her lid and grabs the guy, or psychically grabs the guy who threw the hot dog and says something along the lines of, like, how dare you throw a bun full of processed meat and hate at my friend. And um, that's where I checked out. The first time I read it, but since this is an all-inclusive program, I had to read the whole thing, and it wasn't a t- 
terrible issue, but it was not a strong one either. So I love the fact that Mr. Fantastic was getting pelted with cans, <laughs> right as we were talking about uh, Nightcrawler having a hot dog of hate thrown in his direction. <laughs> but uh, Evan also shares with us his X of Tens tier list, his Festival of Swords tiers. And this is something I'm trying to find a website. I know, do you remember tier lists, right? You have like the S tier, the A tier, the, you know, the, the tiers where you rank things. Uh, by uh, I, They were all over social media like a year or two ago. I'm looking for a website to where I can actually put together one of these tier lists here. and Maybe make one that's like interactable, right? So we can all rank our X of Tens tier lists here. And uh, Evan says, because no one demanded it, but you did ask, here are my tears, right? Number one, the best of the bunch. He says the, his favorite issues from Exitens were Hellions number six, which was a wonderful issue. Marauders number 13 and 14, which was the dinner party, wonderful issues. And New Mutants number 13, which wasn't a bad issue, just not one of my favorites here. Evan does qualify this one by saying, I'm sticking with this one. Maybe it's because I haven't read a lot of Cypher stories, and this one didn't feel repetitive to me. Now, if you remember that issue, it was magic training, Doug, on how to uh, how to be a little bit more um, adaptable and usable on the battlefield here. And that's basically <laughs> like all of Doug's stories. Uh, maybe not with magic so much, but it's always about making him what he's not. And uh, it wasn't a bad story. It wasn't a bad story, and it actually telegraphed the uh, his pending nuptials. But uh, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't put it in my top tier. Uh, now, Evan's second tier, which he qualifies as good stuff, that includes Exoswords Creation number one, Hellions number five, Cable number six, Excalibur number fifteen, and X of Swords Destruction number one. Now, outside of bumping Hellions up to the you know top tier, uh, I think I would agree with everything you have here. Uh, the opening and closing, they were, you know, they were good. They were good stories. Um, cable number six, I believe that's the one where Cable lost his fight to um, to Bay. And also where we saw Gorgon take on uh, the White Sword and the Hundred, which was a wonderful issue. Really good issue. Really, uh, really subverted expectations there. Because up till that point, we saw the X-Men losing, or the Krakoans, I should say, losing very, very badly. And here they caught up and actually took the lead very briefly in the uh, Gorgon versus the Hundred fight. So really, really good issue. His third tier, which he calls the OK Books, X-Factor number four, Marauders number 13, X-Assort Stasis number one, X-Force 14, and X-Men 15. Now, X-Factor number four, I would probably bump up a level here. That was where we found out about uh, the Resurrection Protocols not working uh, the right way. <laughs> if, uh, you, if you perish in Otherworld, you come back as a, an amalgamation of all the potentials that you might be, or, or a smattering of the potentials that you might be, and we saw Rockslide come back as a, uh, as a you know, weird version of himself, a twisted, split-up version of himself. I thought that was a very, very good issue. I think uh, the rest of the books I would uh, I would agree with you on. The Storm Solo issue was okay. Uh, Stasis was also just okay in that... Was Stasis, and I mean, all these books kind of, uh, kind of come together for me. I think Stasis is where we paid a lot of attention to the Iraqi contingent and how they got their swords 
And rather than spending 10 issues getting their swords, they spent about 10 pages <laughs> all getting their swords. And then we brought the uh, the Krakoans over to Otherworld, to the Starlight Citadel, where they went to their bedrooms and had the uh, tarot cards waiting for them. I believe that was Stasis. And then we found out that Genesis was still alive. Uh, level 4 for Evan is the Not My Cup of Tea books. And those are Excalibur 13 and 14, Wolverine number 7, X-Men 13, and X-Men 14. Yep, yep, <laughs> I agree there. Uh, though X-Men 14, I I would bump down to even lower than that, because that is the, the retelling of X-Men number 12. And I hated that. <laughs> I really, really disliked that. Uh, the bottom tier for Evan is, uh, well, he just calls it Wolverine in Hell. And that is Wolverine number 6 and X-Force number 13, which were probably um, X-Men not, number 14 notwithstanding, probably the weakest chapters of X of 10s there. Overlong, unnecessarily long. Uh, we did not need 40 pages of Wolverine getting his Muramasa. We certainly didn't need that. But thank you so much for sharing your tier list here. I love that you that you did this. It's so cool to uh, to see this, and I definitely want to try to figure out a way to where I can maybe make like a like a drag and droppable tier list for this, and uh, we can share it, and uh, we can all compare our tier lists. I just gotta figure out how to do that. I'm not terribly technically savvy. If anybody knows how I might be able to go about doing that, please. Feel free to let me know. But thanks again, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. But that's going to do it for the mailbag today. If anybody would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk with us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of audio, mostly or actually completely comics-related. Uh, you can go over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Drop a subscription, a like, uh, whatever it is that people drop on uh, podcasts that are, that are positive, of course. I, I would definitely appreciate it. And while on that subject, if you do dig the show, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please do me a favor and just spread the word. Share the uh, share the show. Let folks know that it exists and it's a thing, and uh, hopefully it's a thing they might enjoy. But that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and allowing me to be part of yours. Uh, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>